Well, God bless you folks. Wonderful to be with you and worship the risen Lord Jesus. Uh, I was in Israel with some, some of you, and we just got back on Friday night. It's a marvelous experience, not going there. Going there is a terrible experience. I, what can I tell you? Flying is very, very uncomfortable, but it's worth it when you land in that very, very special place. We saw all manner of things uh, there in the Holy Land. Of course, the biblical sites that are so important to us when you're on those sites, well, there's just nothing like it to be on the Sea of Galilee, Mount of Olives, and, and all the rest. We sat on the very steps that the Lord Jesus and the apostles ascended on their way to the ancient temple. We know those are the actual steps because they're carved right into the bedrock. And so to be on that spot uh, is a magnificent and great privilege. What we also saw in Israel is not only uh, diverse biblical sites, we saw many diverse religious faith groups. It's quite amazing. You can get inundated by religion in the Holy Land. Many, many different expressions of religion there. You can see those who practice Buddhism and of course Islam, those who are invested in Judaism. We even visited a wonderful village called Dalyat al-Karmel in the Carmel mountain range where the religion is uh, the Druze religion, a very interesting, mysterious, kind of a secretive faith experience, and we were so privileged to have uh, an entree into the lives of the people there. So religion is prevalent in Israel of all different kinds, including Christianity. And it makes you wonder, well, is our faith perspective merely the same as all others, but for the vocabulary, are we indistinguishable from all other religious perspectives? makes you think when you're over there. Is there nothing unique? Is there nothing peculiar about biblical Christianity? Is this just another road to the same God? You know, all roads lead to him. doesn't matter what specifically you believe in as long as you believe in something. Is, is that what we are to think? On the plane, I had the wonderful privilege of sitting next to a lady from wonderful Lebanon, an Arab lady, from a Muslim background, and I had a chance to share my faith with her. We had quite a wonderful conversation. Later on, some of us encountered in the airport a lady from an entirely different background. She was a Jewish lady. Very interesting, these two ladies had a name. Uh, Both had names that are very similar. It It only differed with one letter. I won't mention their names now, but I thought that fascinating because they come from well, in essence, different worlds. And so you had the very serious-minded Lebanese lady who's an adherent of Islam, and you had this very energetic and expressive Jewish lady who's tied to her Jewishness and so on, and we shared our perspective as followers of Jesus, the Messiah. Are we all on an equal footing? I mean, as long as you're sincere, is that... Is that all it takes? This Muslim lady was very sincere, so too was the Jewish lady, very passionate about what she stood for. And so were we. Are we 
are, are we the same? Again, is, there's nothing, is there nothing unique about Christianity? Just yesterday, I read an interesting article about a construction project that's soon to take place, actually next year, in Abu Dhabi, which is in the United Arab Emirates. And this is quite uh, interesting. It's a project involving the construction of three buildings. It's called the... Uh, Abrahamic house after Abraham, the monotheist, and the world's three great monotheistic religions will have their own building on this site. So there'll be uh, an Islamic mosque, and there'll be a uh, Christian church, and there will be, this is quite interesting, a Jewish synagogue in Abu Dhabi, quite uh, an amazing thing. The buildings will be distinct from one another. All three will be the same height. The interiors are going to be designed to reflect the uniqueness of each religious experience. And they will share a central garden. The goal of it all is to promote religious toleration. Each building will face in a direction that's in keeping with the tenets of the particular religion. And so the mosque will face towards Mecca which is a very important site in Islam. And the synagogue will face towards Jerusalem, the ancient capital of Israel. And the church will face towards the east, towards the sun. And I thought on the one hand, I suppose there's many good things about this, but once again, is Christianity indistinguishable from Islam and Judaism? The architecture of it all would suggest it is. It's three buildings exactly of the same, the same height. There's nothing to distinguish. You can go into this building or that building. It's pretty arbitrary. Whatever you choose, just make a choice. Be sincere about it. So I thought about all this, and I felt like screaming out, no, we're not one amongst equals. The claims of biblical Christianity are very unique they, they distinguish our faith claims from every other religious philosophy and ideology. And these things, it seems to me, if I had to choose one thing, one feature of biblical Christianity that sets us apart, not as people who are better, but who surely have a better way, if you ask me to choose one feature, it would be the resurrection of the one we worship bow before and serve. The resurrection is the peculiarity of biblical Christianity and no other faith experience can lay claim to a leader who conquered death in the way this Jesus of Nazareth has done. And so as we continue our trek through the Gospel of John, we've been in it since 2016. I looked at it just the other day and I can't understand what's wrong with you people. Why don't you listen faster? Anyway, we're in John chapter 20 tonight. Lord willing, eventually we'll finish. There are 21 chapters in this marvelous, marvelous text. And it has to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take a look with me. You'll see John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, It talks about the resurrection without which our faith, did you know this, is in vain? These are not my words. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. You're perhaps familiar with them. Listen to what he said. 1 Corinthians 
chapter 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and what's more, your faith is in vain. Can you see how much depends upon the reliability of the bodily, literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Paul furthermore said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. And so can you see our faith stands or falls on the reliability on the factual nature of the resurrection. Now let's see what John has to say about it here in verse one, chapter 20 of his gospel. Now on the first day of the week, folks, that's Sunday. On Sunday, now Jesus has been crucified and buried. And now on the Sunday following all that, something happened. A woman named Mary Magdalene. I used to think Magdalene was her last name. And now I realize it means Mary from Magdala. Magdala is a little village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's been architecture, I mean archaeologically unearthed. You can go to it today. There's a synagogue in Magdala, undoubtedly one in which the Lord preached. So this Mary from Magdala came early to the tomb. In fact, it was so early, the text says it was still dark. Sun had not yet risen. With great enthusiasm, she rushed to the tomb. She was not alone. Other women were with her. So say the other gospel writers. But if you trace it through in the other gospels, you'll find out she was there first. I can understand why. She was quite a troubled and oppressed woman. What a spotted past she had. But no longer, you see, she had been released from the oppression of seven demonic spirits. Jesus did that for her, and now she, she feels compelled to do something for him. You see, she just could never get over what Jesus has done for her. May we be afflicted with the same disease. May we never get over what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And so she was devoted to him. She loved him. She looked for opportunities to serve him. She had a troubled past for sure, but that did not disqualify her from serving her Lord in the present because he said her, free from the past. That's true of each of us as well. So she came quite early on this Sunday morning. The text says while it was still dark, she came to the tomb in which his body had been laid. Now Joseph and Nicodemus, we read about them, Sanhedrin members, secret disciples, came out of the closet, if you will, and at great personal risk obtained the body of the Lord and dressed it in grave clothes as was befitting him. They put linen wrappings around him from head to toe and they put on him spices that equated to about 75 pounds. Yes, it was to anoint his body, but it also had a practical value. It was to keep the decaying body from smelling. 
This is what they did. But what they did, they had to do in haste because the Sabbath was approaching. Starts at sundown, you see. And you could do no work on the Sabbath. This would be considered a form of work. So they rushed, they rushed to prepare his body. And now Mary, realizing all this, came early the next morning to finish, perhaps, to complete what they inadequately did before this. She wanted to finish the work of putting spices on the Lord's body. And so when she came to the tomb, she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. You see this? That's an actual site in Israel. It's a tomb about 2,000 years old. Tombs in those days were not shut tight by doors, no, but by a circular stone just like this. It would be set in kind of a track in the ground right before it. Why did they do it? Well, to keep um, grave robbers from getting in and also predatory animals. She, Mary, does not know what the other gospel writers have told us about how the stone was rolled away. So she was quite surprised when she came and saw this heavy stone guarded by Roman soldiers. They're gone. Uh, the stone is rolled away. And what's going through her mind? She could see inside. And it's not what she saw. It's what she didn't see. What happened to his body? And so she's thinking, who took it? What did they do with my Lord's body? Who stole his body? So according to verse 2, here's what she did. She ran. Uh, she, was, she was aroused and stirred up, not casual about this. She ran. Who did she run to? She went to Simon Peter. Wow, this is interesting because remember, he was the one who denied the Lord. She ran to Simon Peter, not only to him, but to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, we know him to be John, but John, being quite a humble man, never mentions his name. But he loved this description, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So Mary, her name is really Miriam. In Hebrew, her name is Miriam, not Mary, but we'll go for Mary. Uh, and so she ran to these disciples of the Lord and she said to them, they've taken, they, whoever the they is, uh, have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. Folks, can you see that the resurrection of Jesus was about the last thing on her mind? She had no, at this point, hopeful expectation ever of seeing her Lord alive. This was not her expectation she correctly observed an empty tomb but came to the wrong conclusion about it. She didn't see resurrection. She saw that someone stole the Lord's body. They have removed the body. Who's the they? Well, it could have been the Jewish religious leaders. Who knows? Grave robbers, Romans. We don't know for certain. But she thought that was the logical conclusion to which she should come. What do you mean resurrection Death has a permanent hold on people. People don't rise up from death. I'm telling you, she was not looking for the resurrection. The tomb was quite empty. And at the time, I don't think Mary realized what she is observing is the first powerful evidence for the resurrection of the crucified Messiah, Jesus. Of course, critics of the resurrection would say, come on, you naive Christians, 
They would suggest that Mary and the others, because there were others, they simply went to the wrong tomb. Well, come on, put on your thinking caps, folks. Uh, does that hold water? It doesn't to me, and I'll tell you why. We're told in Luke's account, Mary knew full well where the tomb was. Listen, Luke 23, verse 55. Now the women who had come with him, with Jesus, out of Galilee in the north, they came to Jerusalem in the south, they followed and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Mary was not mistaken, neither was Peter, John, the others, about which was the correct tomb. And if perchance they were, wouldn't it have been easy for the Jewish religious leaders simply to provide the body? And thus extinguish this horrific rumor that this Jesus, this radical rabbi Jesus, had in fact risen from the dead. Just produce the body. But they didn't do that. And so the text goes on in verse 3 to see, so Peter and the other disciple, remember that's John, they went forth. They were going to the tomb. Peter was one of the first to be called by the Lord, wasn't he? Peter and Andrew. Peter had a very close relationship with the Lord. Peter was part of the inner circle. Peter publicly declared his devotion to the Lord even unto death. And then Peter, at one point, even denied that he knew the Lord at all. But here's the thing. Peter did know him. And when you know this Jesus in truth, though we can fail... Though there can be lapses in our faith, if you know him in truth, something has happened irreversibly inside of you. Peter could not walk away from the Lord, but for a temporary time. And I think he was seeking to make things right. He was seeking forgiveness. He was seeking to be restored. And that's why he ran to Jesus at the tomb. I wish we were all like Peter. We've all failed the Lord and denied him in various ways. Here's the formula for success. Let's learn from Peter. Run to Jesus. The risen Savior stands ready to grant forgiveness and restoration to us as he did with Peter. Peter failed his Lord, who here hasn't. We're just like him. Run to Jesus, even tonight if need be. Let things be made right between you and he. For even though you may not have acted like you know him, if you know him in truth, you're a miserable person until you get it right with him. You can get it right. As with Peter, so too with you. Run to Jesus. Well, the two, verse four, were running together, if you can envision this. And the other disciple, that's John, ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. I find this interesting. John, being humble, doesn't mention his name, but he sure wants us to know he won the race. He beat Peter to the tomb. Why did he? Well, I uh, conclude that John was younger than Peter at this time. We know historically John lived until the end of the century, so as a younger man, he outsprinted Peter, it seems. And so in verse 5, and stooping, this is John, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. For whatever reason, he could see inside the tomb. It would look just like this, by the way. The tomb of a rich man, and the Lord's body was laid in 
one would be large enough to walk into, just as you're seeing before you. And on one side would be a shelf of stone, if you will, on which the body of the deceased would be placed. And on the other side, there would be like a bench for mourners. The entrance to this tomb would have been no more than three feet high and maybe about two and a half feet wide. You have to stoop to get in, even to look. And that's what John did. He saw the linen wrappings there, just as you see in this depiction. And so Simon Peter, verse 6, also came following him, following John, and entered the tomb. No delay. This is Peter's temperament. You know about this. He just charged in. And he saw the same thing John previously did. He saw the linen wrappings lying there. And so what we see is that Peter and John, though they're quite temperamentally different, both saw the linen wrappings, the grave clothes lying there. The Lord's body had been wrapped, remember, by Joseph and Nicodemus, and now all that's left are the wrappings. This is quite peculiar. Peter and John saw that these grave clothes remained, but the body of the Lord was no longer there. Now, if the Lord's body had been stolen, would grave robbers have taken the time to unwrap his body? and leave the grave clothes there in a fairly neat and organized way, it makes no sense. And so we're told Peter and John saw the linen wrappings lying there. Literally, in the Greek in which this is written, it could be translated, the linen wrappings were still in their folds. It was as if the wrappings are still wrapped around the Lord's physical body, but the Lord's physical body is no longer there, just evaporated, passed through the grave clothes, leaving them behind as evidence of resurrection. Yeah, I agree with you. And so it is something to scream about. And I think, therefore, Peter and John were struck by this as any normal person would be, the Lord is gone, but his grave clothes are still there. And what's more, they're there in a fairly neat and organized way. Grave robbers would not have done that. They would not have taken the time to remove the linen wrappings and leave them in place. They just would have grabbed the body and ran off with it quickly and in haste. But that was not the case. Furthermore, look what it says in verse 7. And the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Hmm. Now, grave robbers would certainly not have taken the time to leave the face cloth folded up alongside the other linen wrappings. Now, let me divert a little bit and tell you something about this face cloth. There's been what seems to be a kind of urban legend that's taken the body of Christ by storm over the last few years. Uh, and it has to do with this face cloth or translated in some translations as napkin. Some have concluded that there was a Jewish tradition in ancient days whereby when a person had eaten his meal he would toss his napkin aside if he was indeed finished with his meal. On the other hand, if he was coming back, he would not 
toss his napkin aside, he would neatly fold it, placing it on the side of the plate as an indication that he would return. And so based on this custom, preachers have preached this text and said this is deliberate indication, symbolically given by the Lord that though he was crucified, he's coming back. The folded napkin, you see? I love this story. In fact, when I was a pastor of a a church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I remember sharing that story. It's a legend. There is no such Jewish custom. I don't want to ruin it for you. Oh, by the way, there is no Santa Claus either. Yeah, I know it. I'm stepping on toes. The Easter Bunny told me. And so um, I love the story. I got it. But there's no basis in fact. Jews in that day did not have napkins. Europeans did. But Jews did not have that custom. There's not one bit of evidence of this being a custom in Jewish dining practices. And so the story is wonderful, but there's no basis, in fact, for it. Not only that, um, the word napkin is not the right translation at all. Uh, The Greek word is sudarion, which is far better translated handkerchief or face cloth. So we're not dealing with a napkin at all. Not only that, according to the text, the napkin was not folded as in the imagined custom when someone is eating. The Greek word literally says it was rolled up. So uh, though, though the story is magnificent, it's not true. And we don't need it to be astounded by what really happened here. Folks, Jesus left this tomb without even disturbing the grave clothes. I think that's astounding enough. Therefore, we don't have to attach ourselves to unsubstantiated urban legends. Do you remember a guy named Lazarus? I was in the airport when we were coming back from our trip and I met a man uh, from Jordan and a man from Beit Ani, Bethany, um, an Arab man who was very quick to tell me that's the West Bank, not Israel. And we had a nice conversation, good people. They live here in Texas now. In fact, they invited me to their home to eat real authentic Arabic food. I said, where can I get good Arabic food in Houston? They said, at our home. That's what they said. Pretty cool. They invited a Jewish guy who believes in Jesus to their, to their home in Baytown. Isn't that pretty cool? Yeah, I don't know if I'll make it out, but they invited me in anyway. And anyway, this man lived in Bethany, Bethany. That's where this guy, Lazarus, was raised from the dead. And when he was, we find out he had to be unbound from his grave clothes. Listen to John eleven forty four. The man who had died, Lazarus, <coughs> came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He couldn't unless he was unbound. But this was not the case with the Lord. You see how astounding this is? Jesus was able to return to life, leaving behind these grave 
cloths and linen wrappings without any assistance whatsoever. His body remarkably, supernaturally, miraculously came through the cloths. And after the resurrection, he rolled up the face cloth neatly like a scroll and laid it to the side before exiting the tomb, just, uh, uh, thus giving us evidence, not of the theft of the body, but of the reality of the resurrection. And so all this to any thinking person would have had a profound effect on them as it most certainly did in John's life. And so we see it in verse eight. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, we know this to be John, also went in and saw and believed. Believed what? Well, he already believed in Jesus. He was a follower But now, he who had no expectation of the resurrection was persuaded by the facts that it was true. He believed in the resurrection. John saw the empty tomb and he saw the grave clothes still left, rather neatly arranged. And he realized what had happened and he believed. And I tell you, John did not have resurrection hope before this. He had no such expectation. Neither did Mary Magdalene, neither did Peter, neither did any of the Lord's followers, the disciples. You know, after his crucifixion, they were all fearful and rather confused. They had no resurrection hope. But then something happened, and it transformed them such that they became the bold witnesses we read about in the book of Acts. What was it? that had such a profound transforming effect on their lives. Folks, I think it was the clear, indisputable evidence for the resurrection of their Lord. Folks, our faith is not a blind leap from logic to faith. There's an evidentiary, factual basis to what we believe. And the resurrection is based on evidence and fact. It could be argued in a court of law. And a jury who's thinking rightly in evaluating the evidence would render the verdict, Jesus is alive from death. And therefore, those who follow him have a faith perspective that is entirely different from any alternative religious point of view. Folks, most of the early followers of the Lord Jesus came to believe that he had risen from the dead, but they only came to this measure of faith when they saw Jesus alive. The post-resurrection appearances of Jesus persuaded many of his followers that he had conquered death, but it was different for this one, this John. You see, he came to believe in the resurrection even before he saw the resurrected Jesus. We're asked to do the same thing. I've never seen him face to face yet. Perhaps some of you have, though I doubt it. So what's the basis of our faith? The same as John's. There's enough evidence to believe that though we have not yet beheld this risen Savior face to face, he is in fact a risen Savior. Over time, a number of attorneys they have nothing else to do, set about the task to disprove the resurrection. And they subjected, therefore, the claims of the resurrection to the same kind of scrutiny these trained lawyers would put any claim to the test in a court of law. 
Some of them have been quite well known. One of them is Frank Morrison, another Gilbert West. Then there's J.N.D. Anderson. And there was a man named Sir Edward Clark, a British jurist. And after examining the evidence for the resurrection, his intent being to disprove it, listen to what he wrote. As a lawyer, I've made a prolonged study of the evidences for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive, and over and over again in the high court, I have secured the verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. As a lawyer, I accept it unreservedly as the testimony of men to facts, facts that they were able to substantiate. Folks, the resurrection stands the test of time and the scrutiny of the most astute jurists. There's a factual basis for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, please take a look at this ancient tomb. Some of us who were in Israel were at this place just a few days ago. It's about 2,000 years old. It's like the tomb in which the Lord would have been laid to rest. Some even are persuaded it is the actual tomb. I don't know that. It might be. What I do know is wherever the actual tomb in which the Lord's body was laid to rest is, it now is empty. This, this I know. And, and while we were at this place, we celebrated the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. We paused to remember his body broken and bruised, his blood poured out for the remission of our own sins. And we reflected specifically on the words of another gospel writer, Matthew, who in chapter 28, verse five, reports to us, the angel said to the women, one of whom was Mary Magdalene, do not be afraid. I, I know you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. Now, if we put a period there and ended the story, we're in trouble. If this is all we can say, Jesus who has been crucified, then this Jesus is no more than has been. Oh, no, but there's more to the story. <laughs> if the cross is all we have, we're in trouble. We have no hope. Jesus died on the cross. Okay, but we can be hopeful because there's more to our faith perspective than just the cross. Please add to it the empty tomb. This makes a big difference. And so then the angel said to these women in verse 6 of Matthew 28, eight words, they're marvelous. He is not here, for he has risen. Eight powerful words. You know what those eight words did? Uh, they told us uh, not that Jesus died. They, in essence, tell us death died. For those of us who are locked into this false notion of the finality of death, these eight words dispute that. He is not here, for he has risen. He won victory, don't you see, over the last enemy, which is death. Folks, therefore, you and I cannot overstate the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Please make it an essential ingredient in any of your witnessing. 
talk to people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when they speak about Buddha or Moses or Mohammed, of course be respectful, but say, yes, but the one I worship is entirely different, for he rose up from death, up from the grave he arose. Submit to them some of the evidences, like the empty tomb. Paul stated in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that by it, the resurrection, Jesus was vindicated, was declared with the power of the resurrection from the dead to be the Son of God. How do you naive Christians get off saying Jesus is the Son of God? The resurrection confirms that he is. That evidence is not attached to any other pretender to the throne. This is the peculiar feature of biblical Christianity. Do not neglect to share the resurrection when you're sharing truth about Jesus Christ, whether it be with a Jew, a Muslim, a Buddhist, anybody, for this is the distinctive of our faith. This makes us different than any other faith perspective. No, our faith is not lumped together with every other religious perspective uh, the world has known as if there's no difference. No, no. The unique and distinctive feature of Christianity is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. No other religious leader, none, has accomplished victory over death as he has. Only Jesus has. And because of what Jesus did, we can believe in what Jesus said. An adherent of any of the other religious leaders I mentioned to you is doing so on blind faith. On what basis do you follow Muhammad? On what basis do you, do you worship Moses or Buddha or wherever? We were in Haifa and it has uh, there one of the world's largest Baha'i temples. It's quite beautiful architecturally and it's quite, to me, ugly. Uh, because it's a deception, it's just not true. And, and folks will follow all of these and other leaders, but on what basis? Now, if we're asked the question, we say we bow before Jesus because of what he did, because what he did, rising up from death, substantiates what he said. And let me just share with you one thing that Jesus said. In John 11, verse 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he said, he who believes in me will live, even if he dies. You and I can believe in what Jesus said because of what Jesus did. Up from the grave, he arose. So we bow before you, Lord Jesus, risen Savior, wouldn't it be foolish of us even to have this conversation with you if the grave had the last word? We know it not to be true. Thank you for submitting to us incontrovertible evidence for your resurrection. Gives us hope that you are a living savior. We know you live based on empty tomb, post-resurrection appearances, transformed disciples, but also, you ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. And oh God in heaven, we pray there be not one person here tonight 
whose heart is left empty. Rather, we pray by faith you would fill it, risen Savior. We look forward to seeing you, Lord Jesus, and as you are the first fruits of the resurrection, thank you for giving us who believe in you hope that we will follow suit. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death has been removed by you, the resurrection and the life. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for rescuing us from the finality of death and bequeathing to us life which lasts forever. And this we pray with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.